0: It was the 15 worst minutes in American Jewish history. It happened on October 27th, 2018. It was a Shabbat morning. A gunman, Robert Bowers, entered the Tree of Life or L'Simcha congregation in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the heart of the historically Jewish Squirrel Hill neighborhood. Bowers opened fire on the worshipers, and by the time his attack was over, Eleven worshipers were killed and six were wounded. Prior to that Shabbat morning service, by my own calculation, yes, there had been anti-Semitic incidents in the United States that had been lethal. Prior to that Shabbat morning, there had been eight fatalities due to anti-Semitic violence in American history. I could be wrong. The shooting in Pittsburgh almost doubled that number with other acts of violence to come in Poway, California, in Jersey City, New Jersey. The Tree of Life shooting was and it continues to be a trauma in American Jewish history. And as the jury selection continues for the trial of Robert Bowers, the scab has been torn off that wound and the Jews of Pittsburgh And I dare say, America. Experience it anew. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, I am your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. Here is the agonizing question. This is a question that arouses profound emotion. This is a question, I I have to tell you all, that has kept me awake. Assuming that Robert Bowers is found guilty, should he get the death penalty? With me today is Marshall Diane. He is an attorney, he's a law professor, and he is an activist against capital punishment. Marshall Diane was born in Miami, Florida. He was raised in Macon, Georgia. He was awarded a BA from the University of Georgia, received his JD from the Antioch School of Law. And he's been involved, actively involved, in the anti-death penalty movement since 1981. And he's been representing those charged with or convicted of capital crimes since 1986. His resume is long and wonderful. He's an adjunct professor at Pitt Law School, where he teaches a capital punishment law class. He's published several law review articles on the death penalty in various journals. He has served as the chair of the board of the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, as the president of the North Carolina-based People of Faith Against the Death Penalty, and near and dear to my heart, the vice chair of the Commission on Social Action for Reform Judaism, which is the National Policymaking Board
1: for the Union
0: of Reform Judaism. Marshall, welcome.
1: Thank you, Rabbi Zalkin. I can't say I'm glad to be here under the circumstances, but I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to talk to you.
0: I remember when we first met, you came to hear me and Imam Abdullah Antepli speak at Calvary Church in Pittsburgh, a large Episcopal church. We were there for several days of interfaith dialogue, and you approached me, and we had a very brief conversation. So Marshall, it's great to have you here. Thank you, Rabbi. So let me ask you a question. Tell Tell me about your background. Born in Miami, and what was it like to be raised Jewish in Macon, Georgia, which you have in common with Rabbi Aaron Bisnow
1: of Pittsburgh. So talk to us just briefly about Macon. So I moved to Macon when I was eight years old in 1967. My first images of being in Macon were images of segregation. Uh, As we pulled into town, I saw a gas station that had three bathrooms and I asked my parents why there were three bathrooms and I um was told that there was a separate bathroom for black people so Macon was a tough tough transition from growing up in Miami but we had a very tightly knit Jewish community in Macon and my parents social life um centered on that Jewish community, and I was raised in a conservative congregation in Macon and active in USY, um, though there were very few Jews where I went to school.
0: How did that influence your political and ethical position on capital punishment?
1: That's a good question. I'm not sure that it did. I can tell you a brief story about how I got involved in this, uh, in this work. I was a junior at the University of Georgia in the spring of 1980 when the state of Georgia announced that it was going to carry out its first execution in 20 years. I had not thought at all about the death penalty as a 20-year-old, but it dawned on me as soon as I heard that news that in a democratic society, if my state was going to kill somebody, that meant that I was going to kill somebody. And I thought, hmm, I really ought to think about this um, and see uh, how I feel about it. So I decided to drive the 55 miles from Athens, Georgia, to Atlanta, Georgia, for a vigil the night before the scheduled execution. And I found myself in the back pew of a Presbyterian church listening to lawyers and clergy people, uh, no rabbis, by the way, um, talk about how the state of Georgia was going to execute this man who had committed an awful crime, a homicide of a police officer. But as I thought about my own background and training, I um, that the Almighty did not complete the creation of the universe in six days, but instead completed us to be partners in the completion of creation, and that we were created, all of us, but Selim Elohim in the image of God, that um, I didn't think that we could afford um, to throw away any human resources in that sacred endeavor of completing the creation with the Almighty. And I began that night to focus on Maybe I should go to law school so that I could represent people who were charged with or convicted of capital crimes. So this is a passion
0: of yours that actually led you into law. Yes. Amazing. So let's just talk Pittsburgh for a second here. What was your connection to the shooting at Tree of Life?
1: Any? Uh, um, I, don't, I don't live in Squirrel Hill. Um, I know people who do. I was at synagogue that morning, actually, uh, at my own um, at my own synagogue in the suburbs. And, uh, as it happens, there were two services in our shul that morning. Uh, and so I was leading one and our rabbi was leading the other. And, uh, as we were at the Torah, a congregant came up to me and said, I just got a, te- uh, a text message on my cell phone that there's an active shooter at a synagogue in Squirrel Hill and we need to say something. And I thought about it for just a moment, and I said to this congregant, we're in the midst of reading Torah. Um, Shortly, we will take a break, and we will say two prayers. One will be a Misha Bayrock prayer for those who are real. We will include the name, we will include people, the thoughts about people, whose names we don't yet know. We will immediately thereafter Say the El Male Rachamim for the departed, and we will include the name. We will include the thoughts of people that we don't know, whose names we don't know. But this is what we do. Squirrel Hill's a long way from here. We're in the midst of reading Torah on a Shabbat morning. We're going to con- we're going to do what we do because we're Jewish, and this is what we do. We concluded the services. I got home that morning. My wife was furious with me because all she'd heard on the news was that there was an active shooter at a synagogue. She did not know which one. And I don't take my phone with me, or at least didn't at that time, take my phone with me to synagogue. And she was trying to reach me and couldn't. I turned on the news. I heard what was going on. I heard they needed blood, so I immediately drove to a blood bank to donate blood. And when I got there, they turned about 25 of us away, saying that they had already collected more blood that they could use in a a month and that we should come back in a month. Um, Went back home, and just listening to the news and that the shooter had been taken into custody, I knew that he was going to be charged with capital offenses. And sure enough, within 45 minutes or so, I got a call from someone in my office at the Federal Public Defender's Office, that he was asking for an attorney, and they wanted to know if I was a member of any of those three congregations.
0: I spend a lot of time in Pittsburgh. It's one of my favorite cities. It's also one of my favorite Jewish communities. What's the mood now in Pittsburgh, in the Jewish community, about this trial?
1: Uh, There's a good bit of anxiety. Uh, there There was some anxiety prior to its commencing that there might be uh, some uh, disturbance by white right-wing groups or white supremacist groups that has not materialized as yet. Um, I hope it does not. Um, the community is very torn, as are the um, the congregations themselves, and even the family members of the people who were killed and some of the people who were shot. About whether. It's in the best interest of the community for there to even be a trial. Two of the three congregations wrote to the to both Attorney General Barr and to Attorney General Garland, requesting that that the uh, Department of Justice accept the offer uh, of the shooter to plead guilty to all of the offenses in exchange for multiple sentences of life without parole. Um, but there are other other people in those congregations and other family members and survivors who, who believe that in the most serious offenses, the most serious punishment is warranted, and the most serious punishment is the death penalty. You
0: spoke in broader terms about your connection between Judaism, your Jewish faith, and your position on capital punishment, and in particular on Robert Bowers. Can you talk more about that? How do
1: you come to this as a Jew? Well, as I, as I shared with you um, just a few moments ago, uh, Rabbi, um, it, it, for me, it, it begins and ends with the, with the notion that we're B'Tselem Elohim, created in the image of God. Um, I, uh, as a young man, um, I was deeply moved by the writings of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And one of the things that he wrote that has um, been central to my thinking most of my adult life is that we should see the Almighty in the eyes of other human beings when we look at them. And we should act in a way that allows them to see the Almighty in our eyes when they interact with us. And that's the way I approach um the world generally and approach this issue in particular.
0: What's interesting to me about Judaism's take on capital punishment is that the biblical view is somewhat pro-death penalty. Yes, that's right.
1: Although there are, um, even, in the, even in Torah, there are procedural safeguards, for example, Torah says that only upon the testimony of witnesses, plural, can a death sentence be imposed, and that capital punishment was for intentional killings, but for unintentional killings, manslaughter, for example, um, cities of refuge were established. The the rabbis took that instruction from Torah, but also they had at their disposal uh, the writings of the Prophets. And um, Ezekiel in particular, among the prophets, says it's not the death of the sinner that the Almighty desires, but that the sinner will turn from his evil ways. And that's a, that's a concept that we focus on a lot during the Yamim Noraim during the High Holidays. Um, it's interesting to me that in Orthodox uh, Mahzarin, in Orthodox High Holiday prayer books, there's actually an al for murder, a forgiveness prayer. murder Um, which suggests to me that we believe that god keeps the gates of repentance open forever to every human being and therefore we have hope that every human being has the opportunity and takes the opportunity to make teshuvah, to turn away from evil the rabbis themselves, when they took what was in Torah and they took what was in the prophets, they, um, they, they made it virtually impossible to impose the death penalty under Jewish law. Uh, the, most, uh, the most serious of the procedural safeguards is that the two witnesses uh, as, that are required by Torah in order to convict someone of a capital crime actually have to warn the assailant prior to his or her commission of an assault. Excuse me, sir, madam, do you understand that what you're about to do is a capital crime? And only if they hear the assailant say, yes, I understand, and then go forward with the fatal assault, only then is there, and they come into court and so testify, only then is there sufficient evidence to support a a death sentence under Jewish law.
0: It's interesting, by the way, Marshall, when I read about this, it becomes clear to me that the somewhat pro-capital punishment position that we find in the Torah and in some places in the Tanakh comes from a time when Jews have political sovereignty and power. The teachings of the rabbis come from a time when we don't have power, when it's more likely that the Romans would have used such measures against us. As a matter of fact, they did. On Yom Kippur, since you mentioned Yom Kippur, in the afternoon when we are in the martyrology service, the Asara Haruge HaMalchut, the stories of the ten martyrs of the Roman kingdom, each of whom was put to death in a way more grisly than the one before, you can see where this would have come from. The other interesting thing is that great quote, which has become a cliche, which is whoever saves one life, it's as if he or she has saved an entire world, which must be coupled with, and whoever destroys one life, it's as if he or she has destroyed an entire world. As humanistic as that might sound, and it is humanistic, it actually comes from Mishnah Sanhedrin, and it comes from the idea that you really have to warn a potential murderer. There has to be witnesses. There has to be absolutely no doubt that this person has, in fact, done this before such a measure can be taken.
1: That's correct. I mean, as I said, there are a number of other procedural safeguards as well. Just to just to mention one in particular. Interestingly, um, if the rabbis were unanimous that someone should be convicted of a capital crime, and, and they voted unanimously to convict someone of a capital crime, the person was released immediately. Now, the technical reason for that is that there, there's a rule that there has to be someone available the next day. A verdict can't be carried out on the day that it is brought in in a capital case under Jewish law. They They have to actually wait overnight to carry out that verdict and there has to be someone available to speak for the accused the next morning. So if, if it's a unanimous verdict the afternoon before, then there's nobody available to speak for the accused the next morning, and so the execution cannot be carried out. But I think that there's actually a, a more interesting reason for that rule. I think the rabbis understood that nothing, nothing in this world is so black and white that if it's unanimous, they must be missing something.
0: I like that. I think one of the things that I love the most about the rabbinic tradition, by the way, in contrast to the biblical tradition, is the idea that there are shades of gray. You know, my my late father was a professional photographer, and he disdained color photography. He did all of his work in black and white. And he said to me, Jeff, here's why. It's in the shadows that we see the real artistry. So I want to get back to you. Let's get back to America. How have you done? What's your What's your track record? Can you talk about people that you've saved from death?
1: Yes. Um, I've, I've won four or five times more cases than I've lost, maybe a lot more than that, maybe 10 times more cases than I've lost. I have had four clients executed over the course of my career, uh, which is a horrible horrible thing. And I had to be with one of my clients and, um, when he was executed in the gas chamber in North Carolina in 1994. Just an awful experience. But yes, I've had a, many, many clients who have been removed from death row uh, and indeed have a client right now who, uh, for whom we got a new trial Uh, in York, Pennsylvania, and it's become increasingly clear that he's absolutely not guilty of the crime for which he was convicted and sentenced to death and has been in prison for nearly 15 years. It's very interesting you say this because Maimonides
0: himself, the great Maimonides, writes as follows in Sefer HaMitzvot in the book of Mitzvot, if we do not inflict punishment even when the offense is most probable, the worst that could happen is that someone who is really guilty will be found innocent. But if punishment was given based on estimation and circumstantial evidence, it is possible that someday an innocent person would be executed. And it is preferable and more proper that even a 1,000 guilty people be set free than to someday execute even one innocent person.
1: It's, you know, that's been, you know, Maimonides was maybe the first to say that, but certainly not the last person to say that or to say things like that. Um, there have been more than 190 people who were um, convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death in the United States since 1974 who have been totally exonerated from the crimes for which they were convicted. And remember that they were convicted in a system that requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, So our system is fallible, and I think the rabbis understood um, the fallibility of, of, of any uh, human endeavor, uh, and they had great f- belief that at at the end of the day, or the end of days, the Almighty would set the scales uh, would set the scales straight.
0: I remember when John Demianuk, who was accused of being Ivan the Terrible, one of the guards at Auschwitz, and it became clear that he was probably there, and maybe he was Ivan the Pretty. Ru- Bad, but maybe not Ivan the Terrible. When the case was set aside by uh, the Supreme Court in the State of Israel, the quote on this was quite wonderful. I believe it or not, have almost committed it to memory. They said that the case is beyond the wisdom of any human judge. We'll be right back. We're back. This is Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. This is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And with us today, Marshall Diane, an attorney and prominent activist against the death penalty. Now, when we first met, let me remind you of a moment that we had. And I was sufficiently impressed by your grace and your graciousness and your kindness to want to pursue the relationship further. And that is that I pushed back, didn't I, a little bit on this? Because I am not so sure. One of the reasons why I like having friends with whom I disagree or with whom I might disagree, and one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast and hanging out with people whom I might agree with or I might disagree with, it's not really important. For me, this is intellectual, spiritual, and even theological calisthenics. So I'm going to push back a little bit because I'm going to invite you to teach me and maybe we can enter each other's souls and and guts. Here's the thing. In the case of Robert Bowers, we have a case where this guy did it. There's no rational doubt taking Maimonides off the table for a moment, but more than that, I'm speaking emotionally now. You probably agree with me to some extent. We have a case of pure, unadulterated hatred combined with a mass murder, the deadliest in American history. He had earlier posted anti-Semitic comments, okay, against Hayas, which had been the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Dor Chadash, which was the congregation that was using Tree of Life's Building, which was attacked, had participated in Hayas' National Refugee Shabbat the previous week. And Bowers posted a message on social media in which he wrote that, quote, Pius likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in. Now, I realize that you're a purist about the death penalty, and I respect that. I think your reasoning, theologically, is pretty sound. So here comes my emotional response, and we can jam on this, you know, the jazz term, the rock term. I realize that you don't think that the death penalty should exist in the first place, but isn't this precisely the kind of crime that the death penalty was designed for? I'm thinking of Adolf Eichmann, the only person executed for capital crimes in Israel. So let me just say this. I'm owning up to the fact that this might be a primitive response. It may or may not be an appropriate response.
1: Are you hearing me? I am, Rabbi, and I understand it. I absolutely understand it. I think all of us, all of us, me included, have a paradigmatic case in our head, in our heads about what case is the appropriate case for the death penalty. My own view, if I had to articulate what would be an appropriate case for the death penalty, knowing as you do that I there is no such case, but let's assume for a moment that I had to articulate the, an appropriate case for the death penalty. I I would say the death penalty should never be the first arrow pulled out of the quiver. Agreed. So if you if you so when I was a younger attorney, I was asked to represent on appeal a, a man who had been incarcerated in prison in North Carolina for murder. Did not like the prison he was incarcerated in went to the warden and said, please move me. The warden said, you don't get to pick what prison you're in. You're here. He responded, I think I do have some control over that. He killed his cellmate and got transferred to a higher security institution. And when I first heard about that case and was appointed to represent him on appeal, I went to my boss and I said, you know, in my moral universe, this may be a case that I can't do, that I can't represent this man on, because he had killed and had gotten a serious, serious punishment and didn't get the message that homicide was not an appropriate way of dealing with one's problems. And for me, that's closer to the kind of paradigm case where a death sentence might be appropriate. My boss very wisely said, read the transcript, go and meet your client. If after you've read the transcript and met your client, you don't want to do this case, I will assign it to someone else. I went and met my client and I read the transcript. He was the most serious mentally ill client I've ever had. And Almost all of my clients are pretty seriously mentally ill. Guess what? People who do this kind of thing, they're not in their right minds. That's very interesting.
0: So they're acting, again, I'm thinking Jewishly. They're acting bonus. They're acting under compulsion.
1: Uh, And I read the transcript. What I found was that he had asked to fire his lawyers, plead guilty to first-degree murder in North Carolina, and represent himself at a capital sentencing proceeding at which he chose not to present any mitigating evidence to try and save his life. I looked into his background, and what I discovered was that he had attempted to commit suicide three times before he was 18 years old, including once when he was about 13 or 14, he took a pistol into his schoolroom and shot himself in the stomach in front of his classmates and teachers. I had other Clients and other inmates who were not my clients write me letters about how he was his obsessive compulsive disorder was so severe that from the minute he got up in the morning to the minute he went to sleep at night, he was on his hands and knees in his cell with a toothbrush scrubbing the floor of his cell. He was just seriously, seriously mentally ill. Now, does that justify homicide? Of course not. Of course not. But ought we to be putting to death people who have serious mental illness? Can we really say these crimes are more culpable because of their mental illness? I think they're less culpable because of their mental illness.
0: Well, now I'm really angry because you're moving me. (laughs) I'm not angry. I'm pleased that we are able to have this conversation because this is something that I have... Known, discerned, but not really internalized to the extent that I probably should have. So let me just again let's talk Jewishly here. So you're saying that this is baonus and not buratzon. This is these are people who are compelled to do this, and therefore we should reserve several measures of rachmanut of compassion. What's the word I'm looking for? Is that the word?
1: Rahmanus is the word that I that I use a lot and I think it fits this situation, yes.
0: Robert Bowers, does he fit that definition or don't we know yet?
1: That's it's very interesting. You know, when I talk to people about the death penalty, especially in a case like the Tree of Life shooting, the synagogue shooting, and people hear the facts of the crime and they say that's the kind of case where this person should be killed. The What I didn't have time to share with you then, but I'll share with you now, is that, that only that only covers half of the equation. You can't decide what the appropriate punishment is just solely on the basis of the crime itself. You have to know about the offender. Who's the offender? Did he have the kind of intent that the rabbis required and that Torah itself requires? in order to decide whether death is the appropriate punishment or not. Yeah, but Marshall, again,
0: let me push back. You're talking to someone here who loves Jewish law, even though I don't abide by it a lot of the time. How does this text from the Mishnah, it may, might inform your moral universe, and by the way, I'm glad to hear that, but how does that square with American jurisprudence?
1: So the United States Supreme Court compels that, and says, says that the Eighth Amendment compels that the jury take into consideration circumstances about the background, character, and record of the offender, as well as the circumstances of the offense, before making a decision about whether death or life is the appropriate punishment. The court has said, evidence of mental illness or of a disadvantaged background is critical in the consideration of the appropriate punishment precisely because we have we as a society have long held the belief that those things indeed reduce culpability and when we're talking about american law what we're talking the rabbi what what most americans don't know i mean lawyers know this and, and even uh, certainly criminal lawyers know this most americans don't know us, know this and even some lawyers don't in in it is there it, it, it sometimes there can be a not much more than a sliver of distinction between a homicide which is perfectly legal and justified and a homicide that is first degree murder. Say more about that. So, the it, it the act itself doesn't necessarily make it a crime. The t- homicide is not necessarily a crime the unlawful killing of a human being is a crime but if someone is coming at you and and you believe that they're coming at you with fatal force you're legally authorized to use fatal force to repel that
0: and Jewishly the one who comes <laughs> the person who comes after you to kill you you rise up first first strike
1: absolutely
0: that's the difference by the way between thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not kill, which is, by the way, the error that 99.3% of Americans, according to recent surveys, make when they quote the Ten Commandments. It's don't murder, it's not kill. There are kinds of killings which are grievous, sad, tragic, but necessary.
1: Absolutely. Although it is interesting to note that the that the Hebrew word ratzach, um, is used both for the crime of murder and also for the for an execution. Very interesting.
0: Very interesting.
1: But in any case, my point was and, and remains that it's the state of mind. Now I don't know the the, the the tree of life case. I'm not a I'm not on that case. I'm not a defense lawyer on that case. I'm following it in the media like everyone else. But even based on what you read in this man's mind who, and we know he's the the defense has already let the court know that it's going to present evidence of schizophrenia and it's going to present evidence of epilepsy, um, that affected his ability, his ability to think clearly clearly. And that, and that will be evidence in mitigation when they get to the penalty phase assuming that he'll be convicted as I assume he will be. Um, what you read said that he perceived a grave threat, a fatal threat to his tribe, that Hyas, the Jews were bringing these hordes of people to kill white people in America. Now, this is a nutty idea.
0: But it's it's one, again, I'm going to just push back here from a journalistic point of view, this is what the proud boys believe this is what the marchers in charlottesville believe what when they chanted the jews will not replace us that's exactly what they mean. are all these people mentally ill by the way they could be maybe it's maybe all right ready maybe it's a societal mental
1: illness i, I don't know the answer to that question I, you know i wish i did what i what i what i am sharing with you is that it's critical to take that into consideration when one makes a decision about the appropriate punishment, the Anglo-American tradition is one that puts great weight on the state of mind. And so before we can jump to a conclusion, once we've heard the facts of a case and say, oh, well, this is the appropriate punishment because the facts are so bad. That's not what we do in our in our legal system. That's it's it's indeed it's unconstitutional in our legal system.
0: Wow. Wow. All right, let me push back against my pushback. Let me argue with myself. First of all, thank you for teaching me so much today. I've always had great admiration for attorneys, especially people who deal with criminal cases, because I've come to understand that the role of the attorney is to make sure that this game, I'm not saying that in a trivial sense, this game is played according to the rules, that everyone follows the right procedures. Despite what some people think, there is not an acceptance or, God forbid, acquiescence in the crime of someone on the part of the defense attorney. Your role, the role of the defense attorney, is to make sure that it's done right. I also will admit the following... I owned up to the fact that my belief that this is a crime that deserves the death penalty. And then hearing your interpretation of this situation, I'll be the first to admit that I believe that there's something, forgive me, natural and even normal in the desire of people to want to Take a certain measure of Let's just be Let's just call it what it is Societal vengeance To cleanse Our tribe of this And I own up to that However I'm going to submit to you That one of the things that I got from this conversation And that I'm hoping hoping Our listeners will get from this conversation No matter what we think when, No matter what our emotional responses are I know something else about Judaism, Judaism and the role of Jewish law and the role of our story, our Torah, our narrative, our history is to force us to rise above what you and I might call these primitive societal urges to curb those base responses. Am I, am I right about that?
1: Rabbi, I, I, I'm not successful at least 100% successful, but I try to live a life where I seek to discern what the Almighty expects of me and to to, to live up to those expectations. And I, you know, I fail, we all fail um, to do it fully, but I do, I, you know, I go back to where we started. If we are all created, but B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God, then every human being, no matter what he or she has done, has a yetzer HaTov and a yetzer HaRa, a, a, an evil inclination and a good inclination, and the capacity to do good and to participate in the sacred endeavor of completing creation as partners with the Almighty. And I strongly believe that we have to give every human being that opportunity, even as we have the obligation to protect ourselves as a society from this kind of horrible, horrible violence.
0: I have to say, I've learned a lot from this, and there is one thing that I truly believe. I I must commend you, Marshall. Your family name, Dayan, is not only a family name that you share with the great Israeli hero and statesman, Moshe Dayan, but I can't be the first person to tell you this. Maybe just the first person to tell you this today. Diane also means judge, dean, the notion of justice. And I really am in awe of your sense of judgment and your passion for justice. I'm also in awe of something else as well. A number of years ago, I wrote a book called Being God's Partner, How to Find the Hidden Link Between Spirituality and Your Work, available on Amazon. And I wrote about people who strove to connect their religious lives with their vocation. And I mentioned the fact that the word career comes from the word carry. It's what you carry with you. Vocation has the word vocal in it. It's your response to a voice. But avodah, the Hebrew word for work, is also the word for worship. And what I really admire about you is how you've just done this stellar job Of doing something a lot of people don't even bother trying to do Which is There was a black Baptist preacher who said A religion that ain't no good on Monday Ain't no good on Sunday Or on Saturday In other words, what I like about you Is that you've really worked very hard To move the scroll Into your everyday life And to live your religious values And that's very, very Very admirable And I really thank you I thank you for that I really thank you for being here with us today
1: thank you rabbi i I enjoy reading your blog on religious news service martini judaism and i'm grateful for the opportunity to have a chance to chat with you thank you this has been rabbi
0: jeff sulkin of temple israel west palm beach yes this has been martini judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred the podcast with profound thanks to our producer jay woodward Elsie owen keeps this engine running smoothly martini judaism is a blue jay atlantic production for religion news service Many thanks, everyone. See you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.